Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. The book of Ezekiel continues with chapter 8, starting a new section that will last through chapter 11. We're going to get a narrated tour of the Jerusalem temple, which Ezekiel has as a vision. The vision itself may be a collage of all the temple corruptions that have happened in Israel's history, or it could be a picture, a revelation of what it becomes just before and during Nebuchadnezzar's invasion. The date is September 17th, 592 BC. This is six years and six months into Jehoiakim's exile. Ezekiel is then mystically transported back to Jerusalem, where he has four visions of idolatry. He has what is referred to as the image of jealousy, which is an idol statue. Perhaps it is Baal. That would have been very common. There are other scholars who think it could be Astarte, who's queen of heaven, mentioned in Jeremiah 44, or Asherah, the Canaanite fertility goddess. But so pervasive was this idolatry at times that Asherah was actually considered to be the consort of God, of the Hebrew God. And this is referenced in 2 Kings 21.7 and 23.4 in there. So the idolatry becomes quite compulsive and they mix the stories um, up of their history and those of the other gods. There's a dark room of clandestine idol worship, and we have 70 elders pictured here. These would have been the leaders of Israel. It represents idolatry occurring in the homes, in particularly of leaders. The themes are at home in Mesopotamia, Canaanite, and Egyptian deity worship. Um, this is what that would have looked like, so they're engaging in those kinds of things. The picture of the women weeping, they're probably weeping for Tammuz, um, there were two major festivals around this particular goddess. One was um, the marriage to Ayana, and the other one is lamenting the Tammuz's death um, at the hands of a demon from the netherworld. Um, and the latter is probably what is being portrayed here. I think I referred to Tammuz as female earlier, not a goddess. The, Tammuz is the male um, there, but what we're seeing with them weeping is probably they're celebrating the death of the God and praying for his rebirth. Then we go into the inner court of the temple and there are 25 men. This is a portrayal of, um, the priestly service. So this is the religious leadership. There were courses of priestly worship. So they served, they were organized into courses and each course served. For a period of time. And so there were 24 courses plus the high priest. So that would be the 25. Um, and they have their back to the Lord. They've turned their back on true temple worship and are worshiping the sun. Um, this idea of the, they're holding the branch to their nose may refer to, um, some of the worship, this is the rabbinic interpretation that they are holding a spray of twigs in front of their mouth to fend off demons. So it was a, a superstitious practice, or it could be a, a reference to 
or kind of both, that they are sticking their awful smell in God's face. Maybe it's both, that the superstitious practice actually is stinky to God. In verses 17 and 18, it says, Even worse, they have filled the land with violence. So in addition to the idolatry, they are also living in horrible ways. They're being mean to one another. And this always seems to be connected. We don't behave right as a society when we are not right with God. In chapter 9, a six-man execution squad is dispatched. Um, The linen-clad scribe marks only those who are lamenting the idolatry. So the scribe is marking the faithful. Everyone else is now set apart for death or destruction. And when Ezekiel protests the bloodshed, um, God underscores their guilt, like they've made their choices. They've This is the logical consequence, the natural consequence of the choices that they make. And God underscores the fact that they are slandering him. They're slandering God by saying that he either either isn't here or doesn't care that they're doing this because both of those are untrue and they've engaged in a fatal delusion that they're about to see how wrong they were. In chapter 10, we have the four-faced creatures and that vision from chapter 1 recurring. But one face is different here. Earlier, we had a human, a lion, an ox, and an eagle face. Now we have a cherub, a human, a lion, and an eagle face. So the figures now are identified as cherubim, and we see now that they have hands beneath the wings. Cherubim are a category of angelic created beings. Usually seraphim were the created order of angels that handled worship around the throne. Cherubim were usually the ones that protected the glory of God and carried out God's commands on the world, Um, and they were very often portrayed as having the face of an ox. So the scribe is commanded to take coals from the cherubim and scatter them around the city. That would be a sign of judgment. In chapter 11, we have a reference here to Jezariah. Um, This is not the same person by that name that we saw back in chapter 8, verse 11. This is someone different. But we do hear see the number 70, which again would represent civil leaders, and the 25, which represents religious leaders. So Jazaniah and Pelatiah are wicked counselors. And there are two ways to interpret what they're saying. The first one is they are resisting the prophetic urge to settle down in exile. Jeremiah told them to settle down. You're going to be there for a while. Get used to it. So they may be um, railing against that or They may think they're safe behind that wall there, um, both of which are wrong. Ezekiel is overwhelmed again by God's judgment, um, and we see that Pelatiah drops dead while he is prophesying. So judgment comes to those who prophesy falsely. In verses 14 through 21, those who are left behind think they've been spared and are blessed. um, At least I didn't get carried off into captivity, but the They think the deportees, the ones who were taken captive, have been judged and found most guilty. But Ezekiel wants to say this is wrong. God is with the faithful wherever they are, um, and it is the faithful who will um, return. Not even all the faithful, but it will be only the faithful who will return. Verses 19 and 20 are pretty great verses. God will give the remnant a new heart, no longer a stone heart, something that had been hardened to the ways of God, 
but they will be united in covenant faithfulness. Now, remember that for the Hebrew people, the heart is the center of the mind, of the being. So it is where we make decisions and enact our will is in our heart, not in the head the way we think of it when we get to the New Testament. Verses 22 through 25 will close this unit um, that started back with the first verse of chapter 8. Ezekiel's vision now ends with a most important note for the ongoing narrative, and that is that God's glory and presence have departed from the temple and from the city of Jerusalem. It has been driven out by the disobedience and the idolatry of the people. It is a little bit of an echo to the Garden of Eden, but in the Garden of Eden, Humans had to be driven out from the presence of God for their disobedience. Now, when God has come to humans, the humans end up driving God away. And this is going to be very similar and echoed in what happens to Jesus. Once again, God comes to us and we drive him away. We reject him. Beginning in chapter 12, a new section begins that will continue through the end of chapter 14. The focus here is on removing their false hopes and giving them a call to repentance. The first 16 verses give us a performance art piece again. He's going to act out going into exile. He has baggage. He's to dig a hole through the wall of his house, cover his eyes, and then march out at night. Verses 8 through 16 then give us the explanation, so that's how we know what it stands for. And the prince that he refers to is most likely King Zedekiah. Verses 17 through 28 give us another sign act. Um, He is to eat with obvious dismay, um, fear that they will even overtake them even while they are eating their exile rations um, because of the violence and the desolation of the land. So that's what he's... You're going to be afraid even as you um, remain and try to survive. There is a proverb here of endless delay to judgment and the prophetic failure um, that there are those who are saying that God is not able because he is allowing this to go unjudged. Um, but that does not w- represent true godly wisdom, and it is not the reality. Judgment is imminent. We know from New Testament verses, Second Peter, that when it looks like God is not being just, like God, it is because God is trying to be patient. He's trying to give people a chance to wake up, to see the light, to repent, to to live as he wants us to live, to come into relationship with him. To mistake that for God being unable, unwilling, or uncaring would be a, a dire mistake. Chapter 13, we have oracles against the false prophets. Um, they are uttering self-generated prophecies, not things they have heard from God. They're misleading the people by giving them words of peace They're giving them what they yearn for. Everyone wants peace. Everyone likes to hear that. That's a popular message. But the role of the prophet, the preacher, or the pastor today is not to give the people what they want. It's to give them what God is saying to them. He talks about them whitewashing here. Um, Plaster looks good. Um, What he's referring to is a kind of white plaster that would be placed over things that would look good, but it doesn't have any strength. It won't hold up. There better be something stronger inside. Um, The false security that the false prophets are giving the people won't stand up to what's coming. They don't have any strength or basis in reality. 
In verses 17 through 21, we see that some of the false prophets are women. There were women prophets. In addition to the false prophecies, some of these women are making incantations. They are mixing pagan worship with Hebrew worship. And they're making bracelets and head coverings. They would bless them. They might be to protect the wearer or to use for cursing someone else. Um, Some of the translations render bracelets as pillows um, on the armholes, so charms or things that were sewn onto the sleeves or the sleeve areas of a garment, regardless of exactly, it's referring to ritual items or superstitious ritual items to be specific. Verses 22 through 33, the disheartened righteous are encouraged and the wicked um, are warned um, about their divination with their prophecies. Um, they're calling good evil and evil good. And the lesson is not going to be good that they're going to have to learn. In chapter 14, verses 1 through 8, we see that some of them come to inquire of the Lord through Ezekiel. But they haven't just dabbled with idolatry. They have so internalized that way of thinking and behaving that it has corrupted who they are. Um, God invites them to repent because God will not be one God amongst many. Um, I think of the saying attributed to C.S. Lewis that God is Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. Verses 9 through 20, a single righteous person or a handful of righteous people will not be able to hold back the consequences of the whole community's disobedience. Not even someone as faithful as Noah, Daniel, or Job, or all three of them together could change what is coming. Um, Even those who are portrayed as righteous individuals, the epitome of righteousness, would only be able to save themselves. Um, There's an urgency portrayed here. There will be consequences that are coming. Um, There will be famine, which is a natural disaster, wild animals, which is creatures of creation attacking, and war, which is humans. There will also be pestilence, which is disease, which is usually follows war because we have decaying corpses. The Daniel mentioned here may be a Canaanite hero um, on the Or it could be the biblical hero, Daniel, um, who may have already become famous by this time among the exiles. Um, There are those who think that's unlikely, which is why they think it could be a Canaanite hero story that gets referenced. In verses 21 through 23, there are four judgments that will come. Judgment with the sword, famine, wild animals, and pestilence. There will be survivors, and those survivors will be obedient. They will validate God's judgment. Um, They will show it to have been a righteous and just act. Um, And yet what we're seeing as well is also a picture of grace. Chapter 15, the last chapter that we're going to talk about for now, actually begins a section that will run through about the middle, maybe, of chapter 19. It's a collection of allegories or parables and then the discussion of a proverb in chapter 19. Now, the difference between an allegory and a parable needs to be given just a little bit of thought. A parable is a story that makes one point. An allegory is a story in which many things stand for other things. We can get ourselves in trouble when we try to turn the parables of Jesus into allegories. When Jesus tells a lot of those stories, they have one meaning, 
there's one point we're supposed to get from it. If we start trying to assign allegorical meanings to stuff, we will distort the story and distort the nature of God. But some of these here are actually allegories. And the fact that Ezekiel uses allegories is one of the reasons that people want to turn the parables of Jesus into allegories. Okay, so in chapter 15 is an allegory of a useless vine. Vine and vineyard imagery is a very common metaphor for the nation of Israel. It's usually in a positive sense of you are my vineyard, I will send people to tend the vineyard, you will yield crops and grapes and and wine, but not here. Um, And you'll see this echoed a little bit in Jesus stuff that some of the things he says about vines and vineyards are, are not positive words. It's useful. What he's saying here is that the vine here is only useful for fire fuel. Um, Even then, it's not very good fuel or efficient fuel, but it's not good for anything else. And with that, our discussion of the first 15 chapters of Ezekiel comes to a close. (music) 